Let's pray and then we'll get into our text for this morning. Father, we're grateful that we can come to your, your word and hear you speak to us through the pages of scripture that we might know you better, know your will for our lives, understand your truth, gain wisdom and live better for your glory. We pray that as we look at the creation of man this morning, that we would better understand why you created man, why you created the creation, uh, his purpose, uh, function, um, what it means to be in your image and likeness. And Father, the implications of these things on our daily lives and the world around us. Father, may we understand these things so that we may live the truths that um, you present to us for our edification and instruction and righteousness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think most of us have probably seen the, uh, we, we've all seen it, the little uh, evolutionary series from kind of monkey to man type of thing. You know, the first one, there's this little, you know, monkey. And then the next picture kind of has a chimpanzee. And the next picture is a little bit taller. You got your orangutan and maybe only one knuckle is on the ground. Um, and then you've got your very uh, stooped over half ape half man looking creature with very bad posture and then you've got your kind of caveman with kind of a sloping neck and a big head and big facial features and big eyebrows it's kind of looks almost like a face of an ape and then finally you get to us mankind and uh that, that picture appears in pretty much every science book, every biology book, every anthropology book. It's just rampant. Everybody sees it. There's tons of different variations that have been made. Those are made by artists. And they're totally fictitious. They have no, zero, nada, yet, um, foundation in fact whatsoever. They're just merely the imaginations of what artists hope to be true. Uh, you know, you could draw some sci-fi pictures. It wouldn't be any more true than those. Um, there is no evidence to support uh, those kinds of uh, monkey-to-man type evolution. Uh, you say, well, well, why do they do those then? Because evolution is starving to death. I mean, it's already died in my estimation, but starving to death for fossils that hint that it might be true. There are no transitional fossils. There are no one-legged chickens that become two-legged chickens. Everything appears full-grown. There's no transition from one creature to another. Why? Because forms don't turn into other forms. There's, they, we've learned that God created them so that they reproduce according to their kind and only their kind. And yes, there's variations within a kind, but they never become a different kind. In order to get government grants, however, in order to fund projects and get fame and make money, evolutionists have lied. They have falsified evidence in order to deceive the world. Some have supposedly found missing links and uh, as soon as they find one, it's on the front page of all the newspapers, of all the scientific journals, National Geographic, the Smithsonian. The, you know, it all appears. The, the students begin to write PhD dissertations and get doctorates based on these, you know, fossils that are supposedly missing links. 
huge press. And then it's discovered that they're not true. That it's been falsified. That somebody's doctored up some bones with iodine and taken them from multiple locations. And, and it's not really what it appears to be. And oh, it's something this. And oh, it's something that. And then there's a little disclaimer in obscure newspapers on page you know 38 in the lower left-hand corner, number four print. Yeah, recent discovery that you was know, big headlines is bound to be a hoax. So you get huge press for the lie and virtually no press for the truth. And the, the men and women that promote these lies are not defrocked. They're not fired. They're just given money and chairs at universities. Homo sapiens neanderthalensis or Neanderthal man, uh, which had artists portray him as kind of a large-headed, slightly stooped ape man, was discovered to be nothing more than a person with rickets disease. Ramapithecus, held as the early form of man, was discovered to be an extinct type of ape. Eanthropus, or Piltdown Man, was found to be a hoax where part of a human skull was combined with an orangutan's jaw. Hesperopithecus, or Nebraska Man, was based on a single tooth. People did dissertations on this tooth. Artists constructed whole creatures off of a certain tooth, which was later found to be a pig's tooth. Australopithecus africanus and Australopithecus afarensis, known as the most famous being Lucy, have both been discovered to be apes. Pithecanthropus, or Java man, and Synanthropus, Peking man, presented as missing leaks, have both been discovered to just be humans, Homo sapiens. All the missing links are missing. There are none. Why? Because one kind cannot change into another kind. The first man and the first woman were the most perfect human specimens that have ever existed. They were the smartest, most advanced, physically perfect people that have ever existed, ever. Man came on the scene Flawless and since then has de-evolved, decayed, become less smart, less able, less physical. And now we believe things like evolution to prove it. And we are at the end of the creation week, day six, and God is going to create man instantaneously. He is not going to evolve. We've seen that on the first three days of creation, God created space, water and air, and land. The next three days, he begins to populate those three spheres. In space, he puts the stars and the planets and the nebula and the comets and all those things. 
The next day he, he fills up the air with birds and the waters with fish. And now on the sixth day he's populating the land with land creatures. And we've looked at all the different, uh, discussed different creatures he made. A couple different categories. Kind of the, the, the creeping things. Those are bugs and things that slither around. Lizards and things like that. And then we have kind of domesticated animals. And then we have um, uh, just animals that, uh, you know, just kind of... In every different category that you can think of, you know, beasts of the field, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And so this is what's happened, and we're still on the sixth day. God hasn't finished making all of his land creatures because the final creature, the climax of his creation is mankind. And man is going to be the ultimate creature that he makes because mankind is going to be found to be created in his image, in his image. Now, what's interesting is, as God created all these land animals, the numbers of plants and animals God created are staggering. We've talked about this. We've talked just about how, we've talked about how God has created so many animals, so many plants, so many birds, so many fishes, all different, all amazingly different, different colors, different shapes, different reproduction, different ways of eating. It just staggers the imagination and God just spoke it in as like, you know, chump change for God. It, he didn't even break out into a sweat. He was just able to do it. And it's just like, wow. And some of those animals have gone extinct. We've helped a few go extinct, but most have gone extinct by themselves. Because of different climate changes, because of the flood and things that happened after the flood. But the reason God made all the different plants and birds and insects and spiders and fish and creatures, the reason he made all of them is to bless us and to get himself glory. We are, along with the angels, the two creatures God made that can actively worship him. And so he creates for us a sphere, a planet, where we can so marvel at the glories of his creation, we can, as we read in Psalm 19 this morning, give glory to our creator. That's what's happening here. Now picture in your mind, if you can, a perfect world. And this is, let's say you got to go back in time before even man was created. On the sixth day, right before man was created, there's no sin, no death. Uh, there's plants everywhere. They're lush. They're thriving. It's just a tropical paradise and trees and bushes and gorgeous grass and, you know, fruits and vegetables, foliage of every kind, things to just walk around, just eat, you know, just you have perfect soil with perfect nutrients and perfect air. I know that Genesis 2.5 does speak, uh, it does say, uh, speaking of the sixth day of creation, no, now, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not set rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Um, some have said, well, at this point, the sixth day was just barren. No, it wasn't. There were plants and they were fully mature and fully grown. This phrase here, plant of the field, speaks of plants that are cultivated for specifically for a man's blessing, like wheat and oats and rice. Just as God made certain animals for domestication, he made certain plants for domestication. 
That's what that's talking about. So just as God created all the animals fully mature, he made trees and bushes and all the stuff, landscaped everything perfectly. And just see yourself sitting down in some grassy knoll. There's no thorns, no thistles, no biting flies, mosquitoes or fleas nipping at you. You don't have any allergies. You're perfect. And you're looking out over and seeing reptiles and dinosaurs and creatures of all different kinds. And they're all living in peaceful coexistence. And there's no, there's no conflict. There's no war. There's no antagonism. No death. And you just take a deep breath. And there's not one molecule of pollution You marvel at the ferns and and the mushrooms and the mosses and and just all those things God created. It's just the whole world is just perfect. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous and beautiful. And it just makes you want to praise God. That was the world before the sixth day when God created man. Granted, there are some beautiful places on earth today, but we need to realize that Whatever exists today has been subjected to 6,000 years of the curse. It is a fallen world. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I want to show you this. I've seen some amazingly beautiful places. But you need to realize that it's just kind of like the haggard leftovers of the fall. It's going to be eye-poppingly beautiful when it's all restored. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 and following, these words, Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings at this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul says, listen, I know you have to go through suffering. I know you have to deal with your own sin, other people's sin, decaying bodies, all these other problems we have to go through. But he says, glory, glory is coming. Verse 19, for the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Notice, all of creation anxiously waits for believers to become in actuality what they are positionally in Christ. Perfect, sinless, holy reflectors of the image of God. He says in verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility... Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He says, when man fell, God had to curse creation. And so he didn't want to do it, but he had to. His justice forced his hand to do it. And now all of creation groans. It's subjected to futility and it's waiting For the redemption of the children of God. And when they are redeemed, so will the creation be redeemed. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. This is what you see at Yosemite. This is what you see at Yellowstone Park. This is what you see at Glacier National Park. Corrupted, groaning, subjected to futility creation. I mean, he compares it to a woman in the pains of childbirth. And if you've ever seen your wife go through childbirth, you know it's not a happy time. She's not at her best during delivery. And that's how all creation is described as this groaning, burdened, cursed creation that waits for the redemption, for the glorifying of the sons of God. Why? Why does it wait for that? Because all of creation was created to bless man. And when man is restored, everything else will be restored in concert with it. Now you might be thinking to yourself, but what was it like? I mean, I wish Genesis would give us a little bit more about what it was like before the fall when everything was perfect. Well, there are actually some texts which teach us some things about that. Turn to Isaiah 11. Isaiah chapter 11. There are some texts which tell us not only what it will be like when Jesus reigns on earth and the curse is partially lifted, so we begin to see what it might be like. And then we even have texts which tell us afterwards when things are all the way restored so we can have a a better idea. In Isaiah 11, it speaks of Jesus, the shoot of Jesse, and how he will have the spirit upon him and reign during the millennium. But look at verse 6 of Isaiah 11. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Wolves don't do that. They dwell with lambs in them, but never outside them. And the leopard will lie down with a young goat. The same thing. Leopards lie down with goats in them, but not with them. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. I mean, just see this big hulking, you know, muscly, ripply lion with this little tender veal cutlet on the hoof. (laughs) And a little boy will lead them. Notice, will lead the wolf, the leopard, the lion. Yeah. Also, the cow and the bear will graze and their young will lie down you'll be seeing all these animals which right now are terrified of each other playing their young playing together and the lion will eat straw like an ox the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and we learned that one you know cobra bite can kill about 20 people and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is what it was like in part, but better before God created men. Before the fall, this is what it was like. Total peace among animals. No aggression, no killing. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 65 and we'll see this again. Isaiah 65 tells us a little bit more about um, 
some of the things that are going to happen when God creates the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 18 and following of Isaiah 65. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. And I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will be no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days for a youth will die at the age of a hundred and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed it's like man did you hear that yeah sudden infant death syndrome they only live to be 102 you're kidding me is that all that's all People will live like they did before the flood hundreds of years, 900,000 years they will live. Think about that. They will live for a long, long time. You only make it to 100, man. What? You must ascend or something. Verse 21, they will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. And they will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. And the lion will eat straw like of the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. And they will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Turn to Revelation 22, the very end of your Bible. In the last chapter, this is... After Jesus reigns for a thousand years, after the great white throne judgment, when Satan, the demons, and all the wicked are cast in the lake of fire, when God causes the heavens to pass away with the roar and the earth and its works are burnt up, and he recreates the heavens and the earth, and he brings down from heaven the new Jerusalem, a city. <clears throat> and this is just part of what we read in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me a river, the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the thorns of, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and they will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of lamp nor of the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Texts like these give us a glimpse of what it was like before the fall. Perfect peace and prosperity in creation, man sinless, holy, no evil present. The animals we now know and fear as dangerous or poisonous were placid and calm and non-aggressive vegetarians. There was just amazing beauty and peace and comfort and blessing. 
And this is how it was when God created man. Uh, I remember when I was in the eighth grade, I wanted to have an aquarium. So I, in Woodshop, which for those of you who are younger, Woodshop is actually a class they offered where you could actually work with wood. Um, and they had metal shop and um, hunting class where you'd bring your guns to school and um, clean them and go out and shoot them together, uh, you know, at targets and things. Um, fun stuff. Anyways, in my woodshop class, I built a little stand for aquarium and I put gravel and got the filter and the thermostat and put the rainwater in there and let it set for a couple of weeks and kind of got my perfect little habitat for some tropical fish. You know, I wanted some zebras and neon tetras and cool little fish. And so I thought, okay, I've got, you know, I'm going to do the aquarium thing. Well, this is kind of what God has done here. In a similar way, God has made a perfect world, a perfect habitat for humanity. He has, he has created a world so that those creatures who can appreciate it and worship him for what he has done will see it and give him glory. Man is going to be the focal point of creation. For all creation is to bless man so that man being the worshiping creature will bless God. And there's a lesson to learn here. We all need to make a conscious effort to let creation turn us to praise God. I think so often we just go through it. And I, it's harder in the city. It's harder in the city. You know, everything's concrete and asphalt and, you know, everything's in a small planner. And, you know, the only kind of animals you see are starlings and, you know, coyotes eating your cat. Um there's just not a whole lot of, you know, wildlife and there's not a lot of amazing creation. But even even if you were to just go up to the foothills, even if you were to just go up just just to the foothills of any place where the houses stop and you just stood there among the sagebrush and just looked and listened, you would see all kinds of things. Birds you never see just down the hill a little ways. Bugs you never see before. And dusk you would see deer and different things like that. And when you see those things, those things were created so that we would look at them and, and go, God, you are amazing. You are awesome. You are glorious. Look at your power. Look at your wisdom. Look how you made that creature. I mean, who would ever think of a skunk? God created a perfect environment for man. Put him in a garden and turned him into gardeners. You know, in a lot of places in the country, people garden. I think they just have a, a, a greater appreciation. You know, when you're in the dirt and you're planting things and working in the yard, you see things you don't see when you're looking at the dash of your BMW. You, you see cool things. You put little seeds in the ground and little plants show up and then pretty soon they grow and you got peppers on there. It's like, man, that is amazing. You, 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 you're growing squash plants and you see these big yellow flowers of big fat bumblebees all coated with pollen in there. And you just look at them and go, cool. You see spiders and praying mantis and all kinds of things just because you have contact. But most people in the city just, they get a gardener and just mow the crabgrass and blow the stuff out in the street. And so they don't really, we, we live, we're isolated, we're becoming increasingly isolated from creation. And creation is so much more amazing than anything man can do. Man can't even create a single-celled animal, let alone a bee or a fly. Like Watson says, all the world can't make a fly. 
Man can't make any living anything, any creatures or anything. But you can go outside and see those things by the tons. And if you could look at them under a microscope and get really close, you'd really be amazed. And they're all around us and they're all declaring the glory of God. But so often we just kind of live in our cubicles and go from our man-made this to our man-made that to our man-made this. And so we aren't praising God. We don't see. I mean, even at nighttime, when you live in the city, you look up and there's only like three stars, which are probably planets. We need to consider the marvels of creation and praise God for it. Because it all declares his glory. And it is in this environment, this perfect world, that God then deposits man. So that the whole world would be a blessing to him. And so those worshiping creatures would praise him. So look in your Bibles at Genesis 1. And uh, I'm going to read verses 26 through 28. Now, sadly... I was going to try and get through verse 28. And so I actually sent everybody a note and said, I'm actually going to preach through 28 too. I'm not just going to do verses 26 and 27. I'm going to include verse 28. And so they changed everything and the bulletin had already been printed. And then um, I'm not going to get through 28. So um, it was a a hopeful monster. Uh, But uh, I am going to read it. And then uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to pick it up next week. But Let me just read verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. And God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish, the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Our text this morning gives us uh, three facts about creation and the function of man. We're just going to look at the first two. We'll save the next one and tack it on to the last part of the chapter. But notice the first thing is God created man in his image and likeness. This is a huge, huge discussion. I mean, books have been written, dissertations have been written. Uh, You know, if you want the the big theological term, it's the imago Dei, is what it's called, the image of God. Um, the image of God. Look at verse 26, it says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Notice several things. First, God is speaking to himself in the first person plural. I say, what's with that? I thought it was just one God. Why is God saying, let us? Is he talking to the animals? Is he talking to the angels? No, he's talking to himself. He's talking within the council of the Godhead, the triune Godhead. Now, remember we learned when we were looking at Genesis 1-1 how there was very clear hints as to God being a plural God. First, the, the name Elohim, in the beginning God, created the heavens and earth. That word Elohim, the im on the end, is plural ending, not singular. Not only that, in the very next verse is and the spirit was hovering over the surface of the deep. And not only that, there's all the other verses which tell us that Jesus created everything. And so we know that the whole Godhead was involved in creation. But what's interesting about this phrase is let us make man is that before this, God said, God spoke and he said, let there be, let there be, let there be. But in this single instance, this only instance, God says, let us. Which tells us that God now is counseling. This is his most important creature, mankind. Why is he 
important? Because he is in the image and likeness of God. The word man um, is just general term for mankind. Uh, we know this because it, it goes on to speak of God creating them male and female. He created man, male and female. So in this context, it's just speaking of mankind. The Hebrew word is Adam, the word we get Adam from. So God first determined that man would have two primary qualities. He would be created in his image. And uh, that appears in verse uh, 26 and then in verse 27, two more times, God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him. And secondly, verse 26 says he was created in God's likeness. The words likeness and image are basically synonyms or just repeated ways of saying like it was huge. It was gigantic, you know, something like that, where you just throw out a couple synonyms. That's all that's happening here. And God created both Male and female in the image of God. Verse 20 says he created them. Male and female, he created them. But what does it mean that we're created in the image and likeness of God? What is the significance of that? What is the importance of that? I mean, how do we define that? Well, some have said that we are in the image and likeness of God because we look like God. Well, that doesn't work. Um, it doesn't work because God is a spirit. God is infinite. He is the invisible God. And the scriptures clearly say he's not a man. Granted, Jesus humbled himself and became a man so that he might live a perfect life and die as a substitute for us. But at this point, uh, that hadn't happened yet. So what does it mean to be in the image and likeness of God? Well, several things, I think. Some have tried to pigeonhole it into one thing. I think it's a, a, a variety of things. One is mankind has attributes or characteristics that are like God's. These are called communicable attributes and that God communicates to us some of what he is to a degree. For instance, man has the need to worship. Have you ever seen a dog praying? You know, a mouse, you know, singing praises to God? No, um, but we do. It, it, people have a desire to worship. They have the ability for uh, self-introspection, self-evaluation, self-awareness, uh, complex initiative, social abilities, historical reference, self-determination, and other things that make them unlike the animals. You never see a dog saying, listen, I need to build a doghouse. You know, and I want it to be like this, and let me get some tools, and let me, you know. No, that never happens. But it happens with mankind. Thus, men, as we learned last week, are not animals. Men are not animals of a higher evolution. They are creatures who have, from the very beginning, been men and will stay men until the end. Paul, speaking of the responsibility of the church to pay elders that work hard at teaching and preaching, said this in 2 Corinthians 9, 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Now, this is interesting. It's an interesting little phrase here because when you go to the law of Moses, it seems like he's talking about oxen. And yet Paul takes this and he applies it to paying those who are called to preach and teach the gospel. Now, what's interesting is he says God isn't concerned about oxen. Why, why does he say that? Paul's point is this. If an ox does work for you, let it eat all, its want, all at once as it's working for you. 
And if somebody's preaching the gospel, don't muzzle the ox. Take care of them. That's why you pay preachers. But the important thing that I want to show here is that animals are not as important as people. In the sacrificial system, many animals gave their lives not to save men, but merely to picture the one who would save men. Animals give their lives every day. We eat them. We wear them on our feet and around our waist. You put your purse inside animal parts. We have been so brainwashed by evolutionary thinking that we think animals are people. It's not murder to kill an animal. No animal has the value of a human being. Second, mankind can be holy like God is holy. So not only does mankind have characteristics that God has, he has great value above the animals, but he can be holy like God. When Adam and Eve were first created, they were created holy, blameless, without sin. They were godly. They were godlike. They were like God. They were reflecting God's holiness. As God was holy, they were holy. Granted, God can't sin, and they could and did. But there will be a time when everybody who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ will be sinless. They will be brought back to reflect the very holiness of God without sin. Matthew Henry says concerning Adam and Eve before the fall, quote, he had a habitual conformity of all his natural powers to the whole will of God. His understanding saw divine things clearly and truly, and there are no errors nor mistakes in his knowledge. His will complied readily and universally with the will of God without reluctancy or resistance. His affections were all regular, and he had no inordinate appetites or passions. His thoughts were easily brought and fixed to the best subjects and there was no vanity nor ungovernableness in them all the inferior powers were subject to the dictates and directions of the superior without any mutiny or rebellion thus holy thus happy were our first parents in having the image of god upon them end quote so we can't i don't know about you i can't even imagine what it would be like to be sinless i'm waiting for it um but it just seems to me, I, you know, there's so many sinful thoughts and selfish thoughts and proud thoughts and anxious thoughts and worried thoughts. I mean, you know, we have, we're just so plagued with so many problems that it's hard to, to imagine what it would be like to be with, totally without sin. Third, the image and likeness of God, I think, uh, relates to function. God is ruler, sovereign over heaven and earth. And just as God is a ruler over heaven and earth, so he gives man and makes God a ruler, all, or man a ruler, also just like God. So just as God rules everything, he says, man, I want to give you this little piece to rule under me, to be co-regents under me. This is very clear in verse 126 of Genesis. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every 
over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing. And then verse 28 says again, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Thus man is to bring all of creation in subjection to him. All of creation is to serve him. Just like the king has a right to tell all of his servants what to do. So man has a right to tell animals how they're going to serve him. Whether it be riding a horse or eating them for lunch or putting them in an aquarium. Finally, the image and likeness of God gives man that special value that animals don't have. And I want to just emphasize this in Genesis 9. Turn there. I want to show you something. This is right after Noah gets off the ark, after the flood, and God is establishing uh, his covenant of the rainbow with him. But he says something interesting Right before that. Now, of course, before Noah got on the ark, the thoughts and intentions of men's heart were only evil continuously. There was huge evil and murder and immorality on the earth. It was just so bad. So Noah and his godly family believed God, got on the ark, and now they've been rescued. But God knows that men are sinners, that the curse and sin of Adam has been passed down even to Noah and his family. And when they have more children, there's going to be more sinners who are born. And those sinners are going to end up doing bad things. So this is what we read in Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Notice he's restating what he told Adam and Eve. The fear of you and the terror of you shall be in every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that creeps in the ground and all the fish of the sea and into your hand they are given. Notice here that now instead of a peaceful relationship with the animals, there is a terror, a conflict between animals and men, fish and men, birds and men. Verse 3, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I give, I gave the green plant. Before, men were vegetarians, but now God says, eat everything. Four, only you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I require your life blood from every beast, I will require it. And every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So here we see that man has a special value above the animals. A matter of fact, if you kill somebody... You are to be killed. If there is murder, not involuntary manslaughter, not an accident, but you volitionally kill somebody just out of spite or anger or meanness or whatever, God says that person needs to be executed because that is the only way justice can be satisfied for extinguishing somebody who has been created in the image of me. And that is the reason for capital punishment. Men reflect the image of God. All men do. Whether they're young, whether they're old, whether they're smart, whether they're mentally handicapped, it doesn't matter. All have value because all are created in the image of God. That's what gives us special value. We're not just biological animals who have evolved. We're God bearers. We image, we have the image of God and bear that image. Though it's faint, 
And though it's corrupted by sin, when we come to Christ, as we grow in godliness, we reveal or reflect more of God's holiness until we finally die. He raptures us and we receive our glorified bodies. Then we're perfectly holy again. We see the same kind of value thing in James chapter 3, verse 9. He's speaking about the tongue and how, you know, the tongue's super powerful, though it's small. And he says, I just want you to know, he says, with it, we can praise God. And with, with it, we can curse men who are created in the likeness of God. And he says, that's bad because men are in the likeness, the image of God. There is a value there. There is a respect. Humans have dignity because... They bear the image of God. And of course, this is lost today. This is lost today. People do not value the image and likeness of God in man anymore. So the image and likeness of God is a combination of man having some attributes of God, some purposes like God, some function like God and value. All of these things make him like God, distinct from the animals. The second thing is God created man to rule. Look at verse 26, where we are told that God says, this is in the middle of verse 26, that God said concerning man and let them rule over and just stop there. The word rule over means that, to put in subjection, to have dominion over. And uh, what was man to rule over? And the fish and the birds and the cattle and over the creeping things and everything that moves in the earth. And it was everything. Notice all the creatures are to be ruled over by man. Man is to subject them to himself. Man is to bring them under his control, under his dominion. He is to be king over them. The same thing is repeated again. Uh, if you look at the middle of verse 28, and subdue it is how it is here. The word subdue means to trample down and tread underfoot. Uh, it's like the word rule. It's another synonym. It just means to bring under control, under dominion, to rule over it. The word it and subdue it is a reference to the earth. Later defined in the middle of verse 28 is over fish, birds, every living thing that moves in the earth. Now, when you adopt evolutionary thinking, you think of yourself as an animal and other people as animals. The consequences of this is you begin to think that animals have equal rights as people and actually are people. You devalue men who are created in the image of God and you exalt the creature, which is a form of idolatry, which Paul condemns in Romans 1. And this is what we are seeing in our society today, a devaluation of human life and an exaltation of plants and animals over man. In Idaho, there was a poor rancher who was shut down because his main watering pond contained a rare snail that they didn't want to go extinct. Who cares? You know, face it, animals have been going extinct since the flood. Apart from man, animals go extinct all the time on their own. I mean, granted, we've helped a few, but many more have gone extinct without us. And if a spotted owl dies out, it's no huge crisis to humanity. Might have got quarantined off a whole hundreds of thousands of acres because there's four owls in there. Owls are not as important as people. They are not persons and neither are dogs or cats or horses. They are... Animals created for men to use and rule over. I mean, the way we are headed, fly swatters will be outlawed. 
And, you know, the California state insect will be the fly and a protected species. Because after all, eventually that fly is going to turn into you. No, it may turn into you, but not me. The primary function of man is to rule over and subdue the earth and all of its living creatures. And this is one of the things that makes us like God. God rules over the entire universe and he says, I'm going to make you king. I'm going to make you queen. And I'm going to stick you in the middle of this garden and see all these creatures, see all these plants, see all these things. Rule over the whole thing. I'm giving you the whole world. Now that's kind of cool. That is really cool. Trees, animals, plants should never be valued above people, put before people. And there's so many theological things here that even relate to our society. It'd be fun to go into them all. I'm just going to go into one. After God played, placed Adam and Eve in the garden, of course, he gave them one rule, right? Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, that's not like a complex code, is it? One rule. See if you can get this. I mean, they were the most perfect humans that have ever existed. The most intelligent. And say, like, okay, one rule. I mean, that's easy to remember. They will probably never forgot anything. They were perfect. So God, being their creator, their ruler, their king, gave Adam and Eve one law, one prohibition only. He also told them the consequence of disobedience. He says, now, if you decide to disobey me and reject me as your king then what will happen is you'll die. And the Hebrew is literally dying, you shall die. In other words, there will begin a process of death and decay in your life. The curse will come upon you in creation and you will eventually end up in the dirt and go back to the dust from which you were created. So in Genesis 3, the serpent comes along and he contradicts God, the creator king. And he says, surely you will not die. God said, surely you will die. God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan says, eat it and you'll become like God. When the truth was, they were already the most like God when they hadn't rebelled. He was lying to them. Eve had a choice. Would she submit to God as her king or Satan as her king? And so as soon as she decided to submit to Satan as her king, she was dethroned. She lost her dominion. Their right to rule under God. And though God's attributes, his purpose and function of fallen men remain to a degree, it's obscured, it's corrupted, and it's greatly diminished. Now we have a new ruler of the world, and it's not Adam and Eve or their children. 2 Corinthians 4 4 describes Satan as the God of this world. Ephesians 2, 2 talks, speaks of him as the spirit working in the sons of disobedience. 2 Timothy 2.26 says he held, holds men captive to do his will. Satan is king now. Because when Eve submitted to him, she said, I guess you're my king. So he says, okay, you're my children and I'm going to control you. That's why when people are born into the world, they're born in the world, the children of who? Satan. And they must be born again and adopted into the family of God so they become children of God. You begin to reverse the process of the curse. You remember when Satan tempted Jesus and he took him out of the wilderness 
He said this in Luke chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me. And I give it to whoever I wish. Notice that. Well, who handed it over to him? Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, they gave Satan permission to be their king. And he's been king ever since. Ruling them, deceiving them, using them, abusing them. And of course, that's why we preach the gospel. To free men from Satan's tyranny. To redeem sinners from Satan's rule and reign. So they then submit themselves to Christ and Christ's lordship rather than Satan's. Now, most people don't know they're submitting to Satan's lordship. They're just deluded. Thus, salvation is a salvation from Satan's tyranny, oppression, and the consequences of sin, which is the wrath of God, to a restored position of royalty as children of God. That is why 2 Timothy 2.12 says, if we endure, we will reign with him. Why Revelation 3.21 says, he overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my father's, on my throne. I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Revelation 5.10 says, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Revelation 20 verse 4 says, then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark of their fo- on their forehead or on their hand. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Revelation 22, 5, which you read earlier, and there will be no longer any night and they will have not have need of light of lamp nor of light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. The story of God's redeeming love in Christ is to send Jesus into the world as a human to live a perfect life and substitutions for a human to die as a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice for humans so that humans through faith in him could receive forgiveness, be justified before God, be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ to reject Satan as their Lord, master and king and receive Jesus as their Lord, master and king so that one day they become what God created them to be in the first place. The kings and queens of the earth. And when, of course, you look at the end of Revelation, what does appear? The tree of life. The tree of life appears again. In that kingdom. And yet every month you just get to eat off of it. And paradise that has been lost at the fall is restored in the eternal state. So what have we learned? God created man. He didn't evolve. Man was perfect. And since then, man has decayed and become more corrupt physically and mentally. We are nowhere near the specimens of humanity that Adam and Eve were. Not only that, men are special because they're created in God's image and likeness. This means several things that we have attributes, which God has. We have some function. We rule like God rules. We have value because we are created in the image of God. And God has a plan to restore us back to that original holiness, which we once had through faith in Jesus Christ. 
There's more, but we've run out of time. Pray with me. Father, we thank, we're thankful for what we learned this morning. It's amazing just your plan and how you just bring it all full circle. We pray that if there's anybody here this morning who doesn't know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, they would right now repent of their sins, turn from it, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. For the rest of us, may we leave here marveling at your creation, giving you glory because of what you've done and eagerly longing for that day when we can be perfect and sinless and holy like you in your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.